Hi, this is a podcast from the best bits of the Breakfasters from the week ending 14th of May. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live from Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the pod, Geraldine fails at having an adventure. Ben Eltham gives us his breakdown of the federal budget. Yumi Steins welcomes us to consent. In studio, film reviewer Simone Yabaldi looks back at Chloe Zhao's The Rider. And Raw Comedy winner Prue Blake stuck around as our Friday funny bugger. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, thought I made a really good decision on the weekend. Turns out I was wrong. So we went, um, we're, in, I said we're in Venus Bay. Do you remember um, last year sometime there was that whale, there was the whale carcass on yes. the beach mm. near, near Venice, like halfway between Venus Bay and Walkerville. And there was a track, there's the 10 mile track, which um, I thought was um, 10 miles or 10 k. A certain amount of distance, but it's actually ten kilometres from Tarwin Lower to this to this track, and it's a road that you see. It's, the road's actually closed now; it's kind of all grown over and stuff. But it's this dirt track, um, and we tried to walk down it once, but it was so muddy and mud, you know it was just couldn't do it. In in it sounded a bit standby me ish, and it was dramatic. <laughs> and I believe you bailed. I bailed, and I would have bailed a lot sooner. <laughs> But Kath was like, "No, we can keep going." And then there was just these huge puddles of water, and we're like, "We can't, we can't go." And it's just like bracken and overgrown bushes and trees and stuff, and and muddy. And yeah. were like, you wearing the appropriate clothing for said trek? Uh, yeah, I mean, clothes that we can put in the wash for sure. Yeah, yeah but had had you know appropriate footwear. Um, so, but it was just like this is this is not worth it. But I really wanted to get to see see the whale carcass, but it was like it's probably not going to happen. Mm. So fair, we'll just leave it. Um, but Kath was like, I can you take a horse through here though. Easy to take a horse through. I was like, oh, well, we don't have the horses right now. But on so on Saturday, she goes tomorrow. Um, if you, I thought it might be nice, so she was meeting with a couple of other friends and her and her and her mum, and they were taking the horses and they were going to ride through that track. And Kath wasn't going to ride; she can't ride her horse anymore. But she was like, I was just going to, I was going to walk Missy, um, and then you know, so we'll be able to get through to the to the beach. She said, like, Do you want to come? I was like. I do, but I only have like sneakers that are mesh, and I've experienced mm. all the mud and wetness in there before. And because it, it had been raining or it was going to rain, I was just like, I, yeah, because I've got my boots. And um, but they were, we get there, and I was like, that. They're just a tad too small, and I was like walking, around, and I'm like, I don't know, like what's the what's worse, wearing shoes that are slightly too small but keep your feet dry, mm. and or wearing you know comfortable shoes but your feet are wet. I was like, what? I couldn't work out <laughs> what to do, and I was walking around in the hiking boots, um, and Kath was like, yeah, you already look uncomfortable, and she said, if. I'll, if you want to change your mind about coming on this walk, then I, it's okay. And I'm like, okay, I might not go. Okay. Yeah. I said I won't go because I just I couldn't imagine, like, knowing what what we'd already been through, like, that other time, and I was just like, I, I hated it then. Plus there's no incentive of a whale carcass. No incentive of a whale carcass. Look, I would have loved to have gotten through to the beach, but yeah. it was like, 
yeah, I'm like, it's not worth it. And so, and then when everyone, I said, I might have a little ride on the horse before I go though. Mm. So I had a little, had a little pony ride <laughs> before nice. I left. Always fun. Were you uh, supervised or you don't need supervision? Yeah, no, Kath led, held on to the reins. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. There's a proper pony ride. Just so uh, you ride down here. But no, I got it. And then on the way back, I was like, no, I can, I can get him going. Mm. Um, but it, Mate, it was like a hundred meters. Yeah, um, but it was, and then also once everyone realized that I was the only one that didn't have a horse. So I was like, like Kath was, although she wasn't riding, it was like, yeah, no, I just, I feel like the third wheel on this, everyone's got a pony except for me. So what, what, you would have been walking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone else would have been riding horses. Yeah, well, Kath would have been walking as well, but it's that walking pace. So you can walk, you know. Do you walk? As a rule, faster when you're leading a horse or slower. Oh, I don't know. Right, but if you were, if you and if you were in a convoy of horses, would you have been at the back? No, I'd get around the Bit side later. at least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and did they? Was it a success? Do you have any regrets? I do have regrets. Oh. So here's the, like I went. I decided the because the, there's the bird hide that was like halfway between. And I'm like. It's a perfect day. I'm like, I reckon there's going to be a few birds out. Like, and I was like, so I'll just, I'll go to the bird hide instead. Um, and I had my camera in the car and I was like, yeah, that's going to be a beautiful morning. Like you go, you guys go on your little pony ride. I'll go and relax and look at some birds in the bird hide. And it's like a nice, like, you know, it's like a 20 minute walk to get to this bird hide. Um, and it was just like, oh, yeah, that would be lovely. And, of course, as soon as I get out of the car and start walking and there's like – and see there's a few birds around. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. There's going to be so many birds and because this bird hides on this wetlands. I was like, there's going to be so many. And I've seen like uh, – one time I was there, there was like spoonbills and cormorants and like just heaps of really cool birds and obviously heaps of ducks and, and stuff and, and sometimes birds of prey are flying around. I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to get all of this. Yeah. And um, getting a few little birds on the way in, and then I got in. It was like twenty minutes. I got all the way in, and then um, went in the bird hide, opened up the hatch. Nothing. Just oh. absolutely. I've never seen like it's so. I was like, oh, that's maybe a little bit something. Out. Opened up another hatch around the side. No, nothing. I was like, oh well, I'll just sit here for a bit, and um, went. Well, that was disappointing. I thought I really thought I'd get some cool stuff because I think it's because it had been. Um, I don't know, just overcast and stuff. It was supposed to rain that morning and then it was nice and I just thought it just seemed like a beautiful day for birds. I don't know yeah. what birds – I don't know the weather that birds like, I've realised. Do you ever – if you if they were there, is there a threat that you would scare the bird shit out of them? Like it, you got to be quiet. You've got to be quiet. They even say, you know, birds, you know, be quiet. Everyone's got to be quiet. Oh, you got to be – But and do they notice that you're there usually? You're in the you're in the bird hide. Yeah, mate. yeah, they notice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and also you're a bit far away from from them as well. There's like this island in the middle of this lake, and they tend to hang out on this island. So the bird hide is like opposite that. So oh. do you have your camera with you? Yeah, have your camera. Felt like a big idiot. With your yeah, camera a bit. and nothing to see. Yeah, oh, I took a photo of the empty see, island. See that, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I saw there was like one dark and I was like, oh, well, oh, yeah, no, that's right. fair enough. You'll do. Yeah, and then, you know, walked back and went, oh, I thought, you know, it's nice to just sit and, you know, contemplate yeah, the world. And, yeah, it's you beautiful. reflect back on the duck photo. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, got back and then Kath was, I said, how was it? And she went, 
Yeah, it was pretty great. Like apparently, because she like there was really. She said after the first little bit that we went for a ride, it was all wet and muddy and stuff there. And but once we got through that, it was all dry. Mm. And my shoes were were dry by the time we got to Damn. the we got to the beach. And so I could like she said, I could have gone. I would have had. I could have worn my sneakers. Would have been fine. She got through to the beach. She goes, yeah. And also there was some birds of prey Aww. flying around. Like so I said, I don't know what they were. Some type of hawks or kites or something. And then they went for this mad ride along the beach. And I was just like, yeah, yeah. I made a I made a huge yeah, mistake. Yeah, Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg last night delivered his third budget, second of the pandemic and likely his last before the election. Joining us once again for his much-valued analysis is journalist and lecturer at Monash University, Ben Eltham. Morning, Ben. Yeah, morning, guys. How are you guys? Excellent. Um, When we spoke after last year's budget in October, you described it as a patriarchal budget. What about this time around? Okay, so they have got a $3.7 billion women's economic statement and they've put in some money towards childcare and there's some family violence funding in there. So it is a little bit better than last year's budget in that respect. But I don't think it's like a sea change in the way that the government treats women or in terms of gender equality. Mm-hmm. It just, yeah, I, like I wanted to get into, I guess, you know, how much is it really that it's going to women? It just seems like the government's kind of gone, yeah, we're helping out. But like the bigger spending kind of, it's still helping out, you know, not necessarily women though, is it? No, the biggest spending is going to business. Uh, there's a big increase um, or a continuation of some of the big tax breaks to business that were announced last year, like the instant asset write-off and the lost carry-back, just two very technical names for handouts to business, basically. Um, and there's also big tax cuts baked in. Some of those were already in the budget from last year and some of them have been uh, extended for this year, so like a low and middle-income tax offset. That will get you some money if you're a middle-income earner, so that will be welcome, and obviously that will help some women, um, but that's you know, largely the, the tax cuts accrue, the majority of the value of them accrues to men. What, uh, what else has stuck out for you this year? I think what sticks out for me in terms of the overall budget is the, the way in which there's a V-shaped recovery. So the economy is obviously roaring back at the moment and jobs are being added, and that's positive. Unemployment is falling. But then things kind of flatline, and if you look out to 2024 which is when the budget forecasts forecast out to. Um, by that time, you know, unemployment has only got just below 5%. It's just above 5% now. Uh, wage growth is basically flatlining, so wa- wages won't increase. Um, so it's, it's sort of back to a status quo after all this stimulus flows through from the last year. So while things look good now, you've got sort of big sugar hit to the economy now, um, fast forward in a year or so, and things are back to that kind of pretty stagnant economy that we had before the pandemic. And I don't think that that's particularly good for anyone. Mm. Aged care seems a pretty prominent feature. Do you have any thoughts on that? There's an $18 billion package for aged care, and the government has committed to most of the recommendations from the Aged Care Royal Commission. 
there is significant funding for new home care places, about 80,000 new home care places, and also something like $9 billion for uh, care in institutions and facilities. So that funding is obviously welcome. But in the reality, talking to some of the aged care people that I know, it's a bit of a drop in the ocean. It's not going to address some of those big problems that the Aged Care Royal Commission identified. Mm. I mean, that because that seventeen point nine billion or whatever that's that's spread over five years, isn't it? Yes, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. Like, anyway, that's. Anyway, I have no question. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so it is extra money, and that obviously extra money is good, but you've got to put it in the context of big funding cuts over the last four or five years. Government cut about $9 billion in previous budgets, so this increase will obviously it will help. It will um, give back some of that money, and it will give a little bit of extra money, but it's certainly not as much as it seems. Um, also, I want to ask you about, you know, as a lecturer at university, um, I think um, you've taken a hit, as in universities. It's so bad for higher education. Yeah. <laughs> universities have been smashed by this budget. It's just really bad. Uh, so for a start, it says that these national borders won't reopen until the middle of next year. Uh, that's really bad news for the universities because the international students won't be able to come. And it also breaks in a 9% funding cut to universities over the next three or four years. So uh, there's already been 17,000 jobs lost in higher education last year. There's going to be thousands more jobs lost in universities this year coming. You're a close watcher of defence spending as well. How did that shape up? Oh, lots of money for defence. Yeah, <laughs> we're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on tanks and planes and guns. Uh, it's a really good time to be a big defence contractor, like, you know, Naval Group, the guys who are building the submarines. Uh, so, um, yeah, good times for the military-industrial complex. Mm. What about um, the political implications of this? I noticed the, the IPA have said Labor would be proud to deliver this budget. Uh, do they... Where do you stand on the whether it will uh, have a, the effect that they're looking for come election time? It does seem to be an election budget, um, except for universities. It's, it's pretty much good news for everyone. Um, there's a little handouts here and there scattered throughout. There's a lot of spending, um, although not as much spending as people are making out. Um, spending's actually falling from last year because JobKeeper has tapered off. Uh, but it's still more of a traditional kind of um, spending budget than what we we're used to from the coalition. Austerity is dead. You know, um, that kind of idea that we've got to live within our means, the end of the age of entitlement that Joe Hockey talked about, there's nothing like that in this budget. Um, and that's why the Conservatives like the IPA are upset about it. I think what it shows is that all of that debt and deficit rhetoric from Tony Abbott for years and years that they used to beat Labor up about, uh, that was all wrong. <laughs> that was all false. Um, the sky has not fallen in because we've got a national debt that's heading up towards a trillion dollars. Uh, we can sustain pretty modest increases in social spending in the federal budget. It's now being delivered by a Liberal government, and it's going to be really interesting to see what middle-class voters think about this budget. I think it will be popular. I think the government will get a little boost from it, um, and they may well seek to go to an election later this year. What about the underlying assumptions that go into a budget like this? I noticed that 
Josh Frydenberg said, you know, estimates were better than forecast, and now here's the following budget. I'm like, well, if if estimates are so off base last time around, what makes you confident about moving forward here? Well, nothing should make you confident about Treasury forecasts. They get it wrong year after year. So <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be confident. Um, you know, they have to forecast a whole bunch of things that they can't predict, like the, the price of iron ore, for example, is a good one. The price of iron ore has gone up to more than $100 a tonne, um, and that means heaps and heaps of extra tax revenue from the big mining companies has come in, so the deficit's not quite as bad as what they thought it would be. That's a kind of forecasting error. Um, but you're right, the forecasts are really important because they're the, one, the things that they base all of these economic parameters on um, so some of the forecasts are really interesting. So they forecast that wages aren't going to grow at all, basically. In fact, that your real wage, your wage after inflation is going to fall. Now, that's not really good news for people who are wage earners. Um, and there's a whole little bit in the budget about how they calculate that forecast. So um, you do have to pay attention to the forecast, but you also have to take them with a big grain of salt. Um, also, I wanted to ask about the, the spending on mental health. Um, <clears throat> there was a real change in demeanour when um, uh, when Josh was delivering his his speech, and he kind of changed um, tact a bit when he went into the mental health. Um, I guess I wanted to know where is that spending going, and will that be enough? Um, so there is an increase in spending to mental health, and I think most people would agree that that's badly needed and that Australia has a pretty poor record in doing mental health care very well. Um, you're right, the Treasurer was more sombre when you talked about that stuff, and I think that that's welcome. It's nice to hear politicians actually care about human beings. Um, there is extra money. It's going to go into things like post-suicide attempt care, there's also they're going to be setting up new kind of headspace-style centres that will help with people to try and get them joined up mental health care because um, anyone who knows about mental health care in Australia, it's very fragmented and it's hard to get uh, continuity of care, so there'll be some funding for that. I don't think it's enough, not nearly enough, but it's a start. So I think we've got to give them some marks for at least putting some money in there. Mm. Um, what's going on with the environmental budget there, Ben? It just seems, once again, kind of put on the back burner. The environment? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's anything about the environment. Um, there's a lot of money for gas companies. They mm. kind of pollute the environment. Yeah. So I guess you could say there's uh, some funding to destroy the environment. Um, no, there's nothing in the budget for climate change. There's nothing in the budget to deal with biodiversity. Uh, it's pretty much a blank slate when it comes to any of those kind of issues. And what about the debate about funding the NDIS? So that's a really complicated one um, and hard to unpack in a short interview, yeah. but basically the NDIS um, has been given extra money and that's in the context of the government trying to impose really crippling austerity onto it through a kind of robo-debt-style independent assessment program where basically the government is going to come in and cut people's care plans and it looks really nasty. All the money they've tipped in simply gets the NDIS up to where they thought it would be a few years ago when they set it up. The bottom line is it shows there's no problems with the NDIS, there's no cost blowout, there's not a big problem with NDIS spending, 
this is what it was meant to do. It was meant to spend lots of money to give people care because they needed it. Um, and I think the budget shows that. Uh, and just finally, I suppose, we've heard that it's been described as a showbag budget. There was, what, a hot chocolate budget? Yeah, <laughs> hot chocolate budget. Uh, Morrison Keeper also. Do you have any uh, sort of concluding impressions of the, the budget? Look, I think the budget shows that austerity is not something we need to take seriously anymore, that the government can spend more money to look after Australians if it wants to, and that years and years of rhetoric from people like the Coalition, the Liberals, Scott Morrison himself, were lies, basically. Um, We can afford a more civilised society. The government can fund better care, better social services for people. We just need the political will for a coming up election. (laughs) All right, good on you, Ben. Thanks for talking with us. All right, no worries. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Triple R. Yumi Steins is a broadcaster, TV presenter, writer and co-creator of the award-winning podcast Ladies We Need to Talk. Her latest book with Dr Melissa Kang is called Welcome to Consent, How to Say No, When to Say Yes and Everything in Between. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Yumi, welcome to Breakfasters. Yay, I'm on Triple R. Yes, you've done it. You've arrived. (laughs) So so good to chat to you. Um, I've gone through the whole book here. Not a milkshake to be seen. What's up? I know, right? Well, we didn't know about the milkshake thing when we were writing it. So, you know, we would have loved to have incorporated some fast food and a a 50s diner, the whole thing. What's the uh, value of... Uh, speaking directly and not relying on metaphors and analogies? Well, look, most people that this is aimed at, which is basically anyone over the age of nine years old, really know about sex. They've heard the stories, they know the words, and so it just pays to be quite frank about these things. And one of the key messages with conversations about consent and the book Welcome to Consent is that you kind of need to be frank and you need to have those conversations that might make you squirm a little bit inside of your chest, Mm. but it's really, really useful to do that and to practice doing that. Uh, I love the title, Welcome to Consent. Um, I don't know, it just seems a bit more inviting to to discuss it also like consent you know we talk about that a lot but also something that doesn't get brought up much well in my world anyway is the idea of mutuality which you do talk about in the book but can you talk to us a bit about it now yeah, so I think there's an old-fashioned idea that um, consent is something that you that a girl will withhold in a heterosexual situation and a boy will try and badger her to, to give. And it's really, that's so old school, and all I want to do is take that idea and shoot it into, a, into the sun, basically. <laughs> yeah. Because it's really working on an assumption that um, the girls aren't really enjoying themselves and that boys will just pursue their own pleasure in a really selfish way. And that, quite frankly, is gross. And I don't think that I want to uh, in any way promote that idea. I want people to be really concerned about the pleasure that their partner is is experiencing. And if they're not into it, then there's no way you should want to keep going. Like, that's nasty. That's really <laughs> gross. But, but it is sort of an idea that I think there's a hangover of that around. So mutuality is really about having a conversation with your partner, and crucially, this can exist outside of monogamy. Like, you can just mm. be having a hookup and still be very engaged with what works for your partner. 
but but mutually deciding what works for both of you. And there's often a really fun middle ground. It's not about you know you chasing down this this holy grail of experience or pleasure that you want because that's just all about you and if you're having sex with another that's that's not the game Mm. i mean obviously you know we've seen in so many different movies and stuff that that idea of like you know do you want it do you want it you know you want me you want me and then eventually yeah wearing her down so i'm interested to know what's your advice like you know, obviously, you know, males and stuff seem to be almost conditioned to, you know, they don't, it's almost like they don't know any better. And then they might read this book um, and think to themselves, oh, actually, I might be guilty of some inappropriate behaviour. Like, what's your advice mm. to, you know, people that, that are at that stage? Well, look, I, th- I think it, it's definitely something that strikes fear into the hearts of people who may have crossed lines in the past. Mm. But I, I do think that. In the real world, it's not so drastic. It's not so black and white. Like, if you've done a, a, committed a violent offence, for sure, but there's a lot of grey areas in consent, and that's what we're trying to talk about is, you know, getting your head around it so that you're really quite sure that you haven't crossed the line. Um, but within a grey area, say, for instance, if you've both been drinking, um, you know, it's really... You might reflect on that and go, well, she was blind drunk, you know, but so was I. So was that a bad thing? And and that can be quite, like, quite frightening if you think, oh, my God, I wouldn't do that now. Mm. But, it, you know, on reflection in the real world, she'd be like, no, that was hilarious. Like, yeah, I was blind, but it was it was totally fine. You, you know, so that, that, that's an example of where it, it, the real world is kind of like everything's going to be okay. You know, if you've done something that's really crossing a line, then for sure be worried. But if most of the time people are just, you know, are just finding their own way. Yeah. A lot of this book is about, you know, intimate and uh, sexual consent, but there's an aspect that I also really enjoyed about the power dynamics um, and mm. that type of consent as well. And, gosh, I mean, when I was younger uh, – I mean, consent in general didn't really come across my path, but this certainly didn't. Uh, Could you give us a little bit of a breakdown as to kind of how to negotiate consent with power imbalances in life, whether it be, you know, you mentioned teacher and, you know, coaches, maybe boss, employee. Mm. So what, what we used to say, another one of these old ideas was yes means yes and no means no, which is true. Um, and the idea was that when uh, somebody says, no, I don't want to do that, for the other person to accept that and not try and wear them down. Mm. Um, but, but taking a more sophisticated look at that, sometimes people might say yes when they really want to say no. And that's when there's a power imbalance. So if it's a teacher asking them for something, a, a boss, you know, somebody even just more socially powerful, so really popular person, you know, somebody really charismatic, it, it can be really hard to say no, even though that's what you want. Yeah. So in those situations, if you're the person with more power, you have to be conscious of that and give people an outlet to say no. Even if it's like, can you just, um, can I just check in that you're still cool to do this? Like asking a question like that mm-hmm. is completely okay. Um, and if you're the person with less power, you're allowed to sit with that feeling and go, oh, I actually, I think I need a time out. Mm. There's a component in the book, different cultures, different meanings, and there's a quote from Yumi. I wonder if that's you or another Yumi. <laughs> but uh, I was interested in the idea that ideas around consent are not necessarily universal and can uh, 
can be tweaked or have discrepancies or differences between different groups. Can you speak to mm. that at all? Oh, definitely. I really wanted to include in the book um, an experience that black women have where people come up to them and touch their hair. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, so you wouldn't go up to some other person necessarily and just without consent, without knowing even their name, feel like you can physically put your hands on them. But for some reason, people are so drawn to Afro-kinky hair that they they forget these rules of society. And I really wanted to include that. And then there are other rules um, that people might not have enough exposure to. So, for instance, if you're in a wheelchair, you're disabled, you don't want people to just grab your chair and start pushing it around like it's not appropriate mm. um but but some people are so they just get swept up in their own do-goodism or they're, they're surprised they want to help um and they think that that overrides a person's personal autonomy um and they don't seek consent um and they cross boundaries also patting them on the head patting anyone <laughs> on the head it just drives me <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> There's a lot of cultures that don't like that. And, yes, so my culture is Japanese and it is extremely frowned upon to touch an Asian person on the head because it's patronising. And I think that's across cultures, but it's particularly keenly felt in mine. Um, And so don't do it. And because I'm sure people think it's hilarious Mm. to pat me on the head, but it's it's actually very rude and it's done without my consent. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you've done it during you've made the consent Bible and we can all... uh take the rest of the day off, Uh, you know, just like a where do I come from sort of book, chuck it in a room and shut the door. Daniel, I love that question because, you know what, I really wanted to. I really wanted to be so thorough and not leave anyone out, you know. Mm. Um, And, look, the feedback so far has been really good that this is a book that a lot of people wish they had when they were younger. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and I can tell the three of you have read it and I really appreciate that because it it actually does change the way you think about other people's consent and your own. Mm. Um, But we we have been really diligent with our study about how you know how to the best practice for consent education and basically i would love to say this book is enough but you also need to incorporate consent teaching in schools at home and in places where it's peer-to-peer so say a sports club um and and in friendship groups so the conversation needs to be really holistic yeah because i mean obviously you said the book is aimed at people over the age of nine but you've got kids and can you tell when did you start teaching your kids about consent and, and what did that look like well, sort of straight away. So it's I have some little ones and, and teen, teenage adults, really. Um, so you, with a little one, you would say, look, can I pick you up? Or, you know, do you, do you mind if I shampoo your hair? Mm. Um, and, of course, they often say no. And you're like, well, your hair stinks. I need to shampoo it. <laughs> and and uh, so you have to sort of find a way to negotiate that in a reasonable way while still taking care of them. And it's very much about showing them that their answer matters. Mm. So if they say, no, I really don't want to shampoo, you could say, well, how about tomorrow? And you can negotiate that. And they see that their no counts. And it's not they're not going to be overridden because they're female or small or, you know, your child. Um, and similarly, they, they're never forced to kiss their uncle. You know, go, go and sit on an- <laughs> Uncle Larry's knee and they're like, I don't oh, want to sh- sit on Uncle Larry's knee. I don't think anyone does. <laughs> <laughs> But we also um, have safe words in our house. 
which is a really good practice. So picture it, you know, if I'm tickling them and they love to be tickled, they're, they're five and six years old, the little ones, mm. they, they will scream, they'll sort of fight me and, you know, beat me, box my ears while I'm tickling them. But I know they want me to keep going. So we'll, we'll organise to have a safe word, which doesn't change really. It's either pineapple or eggplant. And if they say that, then I immediately stop. But imagine it's like, imagine you're 17 and you're macking on with your, your hot boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> if you had a conversation before you commenced, like, can we have a safe word, pineapple? Mm. Then you've already had a conversation that one of you might want to call stop and that you've agreed to that. So even if the word pineapple is never uttered, you've had a really good conversation talk before you've even started. Mm. It's it, the book is not clinical in any way, and there's you know even good tips on kissing in here. But, but uh, in addition to being informative, uh, it's casual, it's bright. Tell us about your collaborators that brought it all together. Yeah, so the illustrator is a fantastic young girl from England um, called Jenny Latham, and my co-writer is Dr. Melissa Kang. So she is the legendary Dolly oh. Doctor. <laughs> I was so excited to read that. I know. And look, I can't believe I get to work with her because I read Dolly Magazine when I was little and that column, Dolly Doctor, was, you know... It It was was like a Bible, Bible. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was so trusted and she is such an authority. So she still has a clinical practice where she sees disadvantaged young women. Talks about sexual health, um, reproduction, all those kinds of things. So her credentials are legit. She's also an associate professor in sexual health. Um, So she's kind of got the chops um, and the diligence as a medical researcher and professor. And my job is to speak to the youth, which has been my job since I was working as a VJ on Channel V. So between the two of us, I've got the way to sort of cut through and talk very clearly to people, and she has got the the medical background. Well, uh, together, I mean, so we've got Welcome to Your Period. Now we've got uh, Welcome to Consent. Now, up next, Welcome to Your Boobs. That's right. That's coming oh, out next excellent. year. <laughs> You've yeah, got... and there'll be a couple more after that, I think. All oh, right. I'm ready to hard. say farewell to my boobs. Yumi <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steins. It's Welcome to Consent by Yumi Steins and Dr. Melissa Kang with illustrations by Jenny Latham. Yumi, uh, so great to chat to you. Thanks so much for having me. I have, I'm from Melbourne and I've never been on Triple R. Oh, oh, oh mate, come back again anytime. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Thanks, Yumi. Triple R. Simone Baldi has uh, sacrificed and triumphed and has arrived for all of our benefit here this morning. Hello. Hello, and you're welcome. <laughs> so good to see you. So good to see you guys in the flesh. Nice to meet you, mate. Nice to meet you. <laughs> it's good to be here. Yet another Thursday in which I talk about films. Mm, but but this film uh, is old? It's an old film. So the movie I'm talking about today is The Rider, which is Chloe Zhao's second film. Does anyone know how to pronounce Chloe Zhao's name? You did it. I think uh, you I just think did you it. Just, yeah. okay. oh, I'm not good at the Chinese like when, pronunciation. When you, when you said I went, oh, yeah. no, Madeline. 
Yes, exactly. Why not? Chloe Zhao, who just won Best Director, second female ever to win Best Director Academy Award and Best Picture for The Beautiful Nomadland, is enjoying um, a limited season of her second film that was made in 2017 uh, from today. It's called, anyway, it's called The Rider. It was actually quite a high-profile film in the world of independent films, but I don't think that it actually had a release here. It uh, premiered at Khan Directors Fortnight, where it won the top prize. It's picked up by Sony Pictures Classics a couple of days later for Worldwide and um, won a ton of prizes. In fact, she sort of had quite a, um, a touched career. Like Her first film premiered at Sundance, so she's sort of like extremely strong out of the gate because mm. she is quite a visionary auteur. This particular film... Um, she made it's about uh, uh, Brady Blackburn, who's a South Dakota um, Native American boy who has is a rodeo rider, kind of lives in poverty with his dad and his sister Lily, who has autism. And at the beginning of the film, he's had a traumatic brain injury from a fall in the rodeo, and it's kind of left him a little bit lost. Um, and sad because radio is the passion of his life and he actually doesn't have much shape without that. Um, so he loses his horse, his dad, who's a gambler, well, actually he has to sell his horse to pay for a mobile home and Brady has to get a kind of job at a convenience store and this rising star and profile that he had as a rodeo rider kind of ebbs away and he just, you know, wanders aimlessly through the South Dakota landscape trying to... Find himself. Find himself and and define himself as something other than a rodeo rider. It's a it is a quite a slight film and it uh, the features of the film are really these beautifully drawn relationships that Brady has uh, with his sister and his friend um, Lane, who similarly was a rodeo rider, but he had such a traumatic brain injury that he is in care. Um, and severely disabled as a result of it, and he visits him regularly and, you know, kind of talks about his dreams of riding rodeo with other cowboys on the uh, the Badlands of South Dakota. It sounds silly, but it's not. It's just the way I'm describing it. It's quite... It's an incredibly beautiful film, um, not least because uh, Brady is played by Brady Jandro uh, and his... Um, Sister Lily is played by his sister Lily and his oh, really? dad Tom is played by his dad Tom, yeah. Wait, what? So much like Nomadland that was largely populated by actual American nomads, this film is made about the life of Brady. It's based on the life of Brady. So Chloe, what she did was she made her um, first film, uh, I can't remember the name of it, something about the love of my brothers, I've forgotten. Anyway, she made it in the same place, Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and she's gone back to visit frequently. I presume she made some pretty strong bonds with the people that she made the first film with. She saw Brady um, breaking horses and working with horses, and when you see him doing this in the film, you realise that's an incredibly beautiful, poetic, connected thing, and just thought, you know, he there's something about his character and his presence that should be in a film and she just worked with him to develop a narrative around him that worked for him. So untrained actors who seem like the most natural, mm. whole, beautiful people and particularly Brady who mm. is like the strength of this film. That and this phenomenal light and landscape mm. of South Dakota. So she talked a lot in... this. The film itself is just a really beautiful thing to watch and it's very kind of... It's sad, but ultimately quite um, healing and lovely. 
But the backstory of the film and how Chloe works as a filmmaker, which she seems to have done consistently for the three films that she's made, super interesting because, I mean, it's one thing to kind of say, oh, she's working with untrained actors. Oh, she made this multi-award winning film just kind of hanging out with this dude and kind of writing a story around him. But can you imagine how hard that would be to yeah. approach some kid from a deep red state and say, you can, I'm going to... You're going to star in a film and I'm going to follow you around with my cinematographer. And it just it's just like conceptually to me such yeah. a huge... Extraordinary commitment to an idea. Yeah, and to actually pull it off in a way that feels like one of the most like incredibly cinematic. It doesn't have a docu-realism feel. It's incredibly cinematic and incredibly moving and the performances are incredibly moving. So she's somehow gotten this like incredibly rough clay but crafted something that is... Um, Academy-worthy, Oscar-worthy, whatever mm. that means. Um, and that's quite a phenomenal thing. Like she, She's truly, in case the yeah. Academy Award hadn't tipped people off, she's, <laughs> yeah. she's a really gifted director. But we watched the, um, the, the preview for it and I remember, like, that astounds me that he's not an actor. Yeah. I know, right? You would not know. Yeah, he's so – there's something really charismatic about him. There's something like, – there's a scene where he's just in the car and I'm just – I'm like, he's really great. Yeah, he's really great. Just staring at the window. He's really great just staring. <laughs> he does a lot of just staring. <laughs> and it's, but you think that's good, you should see him break a horse, which, you know – Chloe mentioned this when she was doing press for this movie – that she's gone into a very deep red state, into a very um, strong Trump supporter base land mm. and created this deeply empathetic story that even includes for people like me who are super squeamish about um, the way that we use horses and other beasts of burden. And, you know, he's definitely breaking a horse in the film, but just you can see that there is something actually quite complex and profound and beautiful and there's a deep love that he has for the animal and these are the bridges that she's building all the time mm. she, she talks about the fact that um she wants to she's she's made two of the three films she's made um focus on male characters she wants to look at masculine stories with a female gaze um which i thought was really beautiful like and, and for her that's actually about building a bridge between um this kind of what she perceives as a growing gender divide. So rather than she considers herself a very staunch feminist, but being a staunch feminist for her is actually about um, showing the world male stories in, mm, from yeah. a female perspective, uh, which I thought was really nice mm. and beautiful. And it 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 looks absolutely amazing. This film. It's what? like I'm, I I did not get I did not watch it for the first time on a cinema screen, but I'm very excited that people have the opportunity to do so. Where can we do that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I know that it's at the Nova from today, but it's not listed as an Nova exclusive, so I presume that M- Melbourne's many, many fine art house cinemas um, are probably screening it. Um, but I imagine it's going to be something of a limited season, so I would definitely get in. I mean, it's also on Netflix, but don't watch it on Netflix. No, you've got to go to the cinema for that. You've got to go support your local cinemas who are experiencing this very interesting... Um, season of programming uh, but also this film deserves to be seen on the big screen I'm sorry I didn't oh, can't I might wait. go and see it again I'll go yeah, go. It's, yeah. F- it's hollow as it is sometimes to bestow prizes on art one of the benefits <laughs> is that this commercial stuff happens yeah. where old films come back to our attention from yes. directors that have just 
uh, blown up. To be fair, I don't think we'd be in this situation if we weren't in such an intense landscape where production has halted, where the kind of bottom has fallen out a lot of independent filmmaking. And so now you're seeing at every independent cinema across Melbourne this incredibly creative um, scramble for content. So there's mm. all sorts of... I'm going to um, make a home video and send it into Nova. <laughs> 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 Some of the screens aren't that much bigger <laughs> than your home TV screen. It's but I appreciate a, the efforts in programming. It's uh, Chloe Zhao's The Rider. And uh, how many films? Is that the two it's films now? From Chloe Zhao? Yeah. That's her third. So okay. I think it's Songs My Brother Songs oh, My Brother Taught Me is the first one. Yep, the yep. Rider is the second one. Uh, and Nomadland is the third one. All right. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Simone Yuboli, thanks for trekking in. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Thanks, Simone. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We are joined for our Friday Funny Bugger this week by recent World Comedy winner Prue Blake. Prue, wrapped to have you in the studio oh, finally. Oh, hello. Hiya. So good to see your faces. <laughs> It's nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Yes. I guess I thought I have seen your faces before, but just it's different. It is. It's different. Well, we, I mean, mine's uh, an extra different face because yeah, you would have different. seen. No, no, you would have seen Mon's face before. Yes. So yeah, or I'm like um, Geraldine. You've grown your hair out. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also different. Mm. Yes. How's how's life with the uh, glow? Life. I'm still glowing, mm. still going good. I uh, was going to talk about I got a recognised the Ooh, other day. Hello. Can nice. you believe it? I know. I was in Morrison, which is like a really fancy store I wouldn't normally go into. But I, I have my PhD graduation coming up, so I needed something to wear. And then the person wo- working there walked over to me and she was like... I don't want to sound like a big old creep or anything, but are you Prue Blake? Wow. I thought they were doing, like, credit checks or something, and they were like, <laughs> because you can't afford to shop here. <laughs> uh, but it uh, turns out she'd been at Geraldine's show and Geraldine oh, had had me open for her. Great. Oh, nice. And she was like, I saw you on Geraldine's show. I loved you so much. Oh. And I was like, yeah, better than Geraldine, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I suppose you had to buy something. And then I, well, I, like, got really in my head because I was like, "Mm, if I buy something, will it give away that I have too much money for a comedian? Right. And I don't don't just want to be like, I have a day job the whole time (laughs) (laughs) that I'm buying it. So what I did is I just lingered for enough time to see, like, I hadn't been phased by the interaction. Yeah. and, And then I left quietly. But the problem is I did actually really want to dress. I had to go back a few days later, try and suss out if the same girl was there. She wasn't. And I went back and put a dress there. (laughs) So you didn't want to purchase the dress whilst she was there. I just, I got in my head about it. You, you could know? have probably, she would have probably got commissioned from that. If you, you yeah, are. Yeah. So mean. Yeah. If, if she's listening now, what would you like to say to her? I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, I mean, what's that about? Like, wouldn't that have been, was it the trying on of the dress and the continued interaction that yeah, you feared? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when someone recognises you for doing comedy, I think they expect you to be funny in that mm. interaction. You're like, oh, I'm not funny funny in person you know i need the stage i need the status yeah i need the pre-written material (laughs) you're like i can't give all i can be like oh thank you (laughs) 
Um, and what's what's your PhD on? My PhD is on buses. I can't believe I haven't talked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I haven't talked about it on the breakfasts before. It's um, yeah. I have a PhD. It's in civil engineering, technically, cool. and it's on developing a new model to get people to, in Melbourne to ride the bus. Right. right. What is what is holding us back from buses? I just fucking hate them. Yeah, yeah. Really? they I, hate them. I don't know. Actually, no. I have one friend who enjoys the bus, and I always give her flack for it. She's like, mm, I'm going to choose the bus over the train <laughs> and the tram. I'm like, who are you? I like the bus. You I like mean, the bus? what? Do you guys never travel east west? C- mm. Come on. No. Look, <laughs> buses are buses are underrated completely. Yeah. However, however, yeah. Uh, they no one's helping you. There is no. There is no. From what I can gather, unlike there being a track, where yeah. it's like then it's this, then it's this, then it's this. If you're first time bus user, you have no idea really where it's going. Yeah, this came up a lot in my research. Right. Everyone said that. Yes. Like, oh, I just don't know. And has it been or is it coming? What's going on? Right. And so what are you going to do to fix it? Well, basically my research said, I don't know. <laughs> How academic. Uh, yeah, which was very PhD of me. Just be like, can this fix the bus? Yeah. No. <laughs> There's also I got on a bus and uh, I think we were doing a we were doing an outside broadcast in Footscray and I called the bus home. It took me two hours because it went to the end of the line, but it went the wrong way. <gasps> oh, no. Anyway, it was super oh, embarrassing. No. But it's very comfortable and and civilized. I find buses quite civilized. I think the problem is that the reason I like buses in Melbourne is because there's no one on them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you do always get a seat. You always, always get, a, get seat. a seat. It's easy going. But I think the solution that everyone's looking at at the moment is what you do is you drop the floor of the bus and you call it a trackless tram. Yeah. And then Melbourne's going to get on board. That's right. Oh. I think so. Did you follow this rubber tram situation? No. It's, it's new. And it, it, they appear to have just described a bus because they're like, <laughs> it has wheels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so there's what's happening at Lonsdale Street? Lonsdale Street. Well, isn't there like a backlog of buses all the time? Oh, I think it's just a bus interchange. It's just a bus interchange. And do you spend a lot of time there? I I have (laughs) been recently. I've just started (laughs) working. I know. I was like, I didn't expect to be talking about my bus passion. (laughs) I'm loving it. Yeah, I actually did recently start working on Lonsdale Street and I've got a window looking out over the bus interchange. (laughs) I must be in heaven. I am in heaven. Is it sad that it's over now, the PhD? No, I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. I just, I, um, what I was trying to tell someone the other day is that I was single for a really long time mm-hmm. and I just really hated the title Ms. Yeah. So I was like, you know, chuck four years of study in, doctor forever. Oh, hello. <laughs> Nobody ever knows. Dr. Bus Prue. Yeah. <laughs> so you will be Dr. Forever. Will anyone come uh, to your graduation or whatever it's called, the ceremony? Yeah, it's on in two weeks. My mum's coming yeah. and my partner is coming yeah. and I've got one spare ticket. So oh, okay. <laughs> up the grades yeah. for subscribers. Wants to come along. Um, and you'll, you're going to stick around for the rest of the show. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Woo, woo, woo. Hang in with us. Yeah, love it. Triple R. We're here with comedian and bus enthusiast Prue Blake, who um, off-air slagged off Sydney buses, which I haven't hey. heard Melbourne and Sydney rivalry extend to buses. <laughs> well, it's my niche interest. Yeah, so. evidently. Um, did you catch a bus to school? No. Right. I got a lift. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But was there a bus available to you? 
No, not really. It was like the bus would have taken an hour and a half and yeah. the drive was like five minutes. Mm. I, uh, there was all, I always felt the kids who caught the bus, there was a different community. Yeah. And I... It know, seemed cool. Yeah, they did seem cool. Yeah. That's right. Independent. Uh, <laughs> tell you who else is cool. Uh, Jacob Matthews from Dorinia Primary School in Frankston. Now, I'm familiar Ooh. with Dorinia Primary School <gasps> and I'm surprised that this happened. Uh, Jacob Matthews blitzed the Prime Minister's spelling bee with a perfect score at the <gasps> state final. Oh, my God. Oh. Well done, Jacob Matthews. Isn't that terrific? What a good shot. Yeah. Does it tell you what the hardest word was? Well, the words are... They're not that difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh, spell them. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's... Yeah, grade four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's... Okay, well, sleet, Yeah. for instance. Okay. Uh, I was like, I'll spell it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I noticed you both are conspicuously silent weighing in. Um, Mulga. Oh, actually, I don't know. That that one might actually catch me out. Yeah. yeah that that... Is, like, what is what is Mulga? Is it a bird? Uh, it's a, a acacia tree or shrub. Oh, oh it's okay. Australian. Oh, of course, the first name of Mulga Bill. Mm. Uh, now, w- one thing that I did find disturbing about one of the words <laughs> is one of the words he had to spell, Jacob, was idiot. Oh, <laughs> Can you then, use that in a sentence? <laughs> I know. I'm like, what a, what a, a horrible, like, because people choke yeah. in pressure situations. Yeah. And if you choke on idiot. I-E-T. charge of deciding these words. We don't know. Uh, So there are 21,000 students from 490 schools competed, so it's a big deal. Um, One of them was Disappoint, which I I admit is one of my words. Yeah. That's do, would you ever do you follow the rule or I what's mean, the rule? What's well, the rule? I, I, the, I mean, I'll say the rule and yeah. it'll forget. And it's the the rule is so unmemorable. Well, it's like, well, how many p's and how many s's? That's what people want yeah. to know. Yeah. So. Two? I don't know, I don't know the rule. I, I, I honestly think I spell disappoint incorrectly every, every time. single time. Yeah, because I'm like, do I do two S's? Yeah, I don't is know. Is it how, two S's? It's see one now. S. It's oh, one see? S. There it's, we go. It's one Case in point. It's like, one S. Maybe here's a deal. You know that it's not two and two. Yeah. So but you know how to spell a point. Yeah. Yeah. True. Um, there we go. Okay, well, okay. I'll never get it wrong again. Yeah, great. Put me in that spelling bee, chat. I want a spelling bee and I didn't. It didn't work out well for me, socially. No? Oh, yeah, it? But times have changed, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's on TV now. Isn't there a spelling bee TV show? Yeah, I think so. But the thing is, just because you can spell a word doesn't mean you have it in your bones. You're not a speller. Yeah. Well, it, does, it doesn't mean you've got a facility or it doesn't necessarily mean that you've, you like language. Mm. Maybe it's just you know where all the consonants and vowels go. Yeah, good. Just yeah. good at phonetic sounding out. That's right. It's, and it's my job to slag off the achievements yeah. of children and keep them in perspective. <laughs> You'll never amount to anything. <laughs> uh, there's also just with children uh, in the news and overachievers and uh, what they have to go through. So junior footy coaches in charge of players as young as nine have been warned to lay off umpires. So there's just been this spate of abusive incidents. Really? Mm. So Yarra Junior Football League, the the boss has sent a message to all the clubs, it's very concerned and most concerned about under 10s and under 11s. Wow. So we have coaches abusing umpires and umpires are like, 
if I took it to heart, I would have retired many years ago, this umpire said. It is leading to a huge downturn in umpires. It impacts on development and it certainly is going to hurt the game. Wow. You can see how that happens, though, because I used to have a crush on this guy and then I must have told him off for not talking to me enough at one point. He goes, oh, sorry, I'm just really depressed at the moment. My football team's doing badly. (laughs) <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was like, and How those long... people go on to be parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I because I, I was always taught just respect the umpire. Mm. I mean, it would it would never even occur to me in a million years to abuse an umpire. Mm. No, not to their face. No, no. no. <laughs> it's behind their back. Yeah. Also, one thing that's peculiar is the abuse that umpires receive. And I'm, I'm not a huge sporting fanatic, but the abuse that, say, AFL umpires receive, and yet the Brownlow is hugely valued yeah. as an award. Yeah. But who decides the Brownlow? The umpires. Mmm. It's like you always got to suck up to the support staff. That's, that's yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I, I have nieces who play football and they're in a team that is so shocking. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's... Have you have you been to a game? I haven't, but I've heard reports. Uh, yeah, and I, I do intend to go. You've heard the scores. Well, yeah, the scores are such a blowout that they turn off the scoreboard. <laughs> really? So they don't get their feelings hurt. They don't hurt. get demoralised. Yeah. No. Wow. And when I, was, when I was playing cricket as a junior, you that would make you retire, really? like at 50 or 20, mm. so that you didn't demoralise the other team with your epic score. Wow. Mm. Uh, but there was one time I was, uh, I was captain of a team and we were getting punished and he, he scored like 208, this batsman. And he got dropped so many times. I remember I bowled to him and he hit a, the world's easiest catch <laughs> to someone and I turned around and just went back to the top of my mark knowing full well it would be dropped. <laughs> uh, and, but I still I didn't abuse anyone. There was, there was, these are the people, uh, because I think people get frustrated with not only umpires but children. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. yeah the well, there was, of both worlds yeah. in that game. There was a, I was playing cricket again and I was... At the other, I was at the non-striker's end and there was someone playing and he was wildly playing and missing every ball and it was very tense. Yeah. We needed him to stay in. <laughs> and he was wildly, like it, he didn't have to be smashing it, he could just block it. Anyway, I was yelling out after every ball, was like, play, just play each ball on its merits, play each ball on its merits. <laughs> and then he was wildly swinging it. And then at the end of the over, you come and meet and have a chat. And we met in the middle at the end of the over and I said, what's going on? And he, um, he said, what's merits? <laughs> And then did you spell it out? Like, <laughs> M-E. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live from Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with The Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.